From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. The news that on Tuesday the UK recorded no COVID deaths for the first time since the pandemic began has ramped up the pressure on Boris Johnson. The good news comes amid debate over ending restrictions. Business leaders are seeing it as clear vindication of the plan to end all restrictions on June the 21st. But at the same time, we continue to see a rise in cases linked to the Delta variant. That's the one that originated in India. Now, a large number of government advising scientists have publicly called for a delay to the lifting of lockdown restrictions. Devi Sridhar is a professor of global public health and says we should be driven by the data. We thought it would be over by Christmas and it wasn't. So the end of the pandemic is in sight. That's the good news. We have a way out of this with vaccines and therapeutics. It just may not be June 21st. It might be a week or two later. And so I think that's the kind of attitude we need to have rather than fixating on that date being success or failure. And Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has put easy on hold for millions of Scots because of concerns around growing case numbers. Many public health experts are warning that the UK could and I stress could now be at the start of a third wave of the virus. And obviously, it would be wrong to completely ignore that warning. Much of Scotland's central belt is in level two restrictions. Well, joining us now is Alison Tulis, MP for Glasgow Central, a shadow treasury spokesperson for the SNP. Alison, thank you so much for being with us today. First of all, just clarify, what sort of restrictions is Glasgow in at the moment uh, and how are people reacting to that? So Glasgow is going to be moving from level three to level two, which I'm very pleased about. Um, and lots of people in Glasgow are also quite quite pleased about that. So that moves sort of uh, on Saturday, 5th of June. Um, so that means hospitality settings, including pubs, restaurants and cafes, up to six people can meet indoors from up to three households. Uh, alcohol can then be served indoors up to 10.30 and venues uh, such as cinemas, theatres, um, casinos, uh, snooker halls can, can reopen. So people are, are pleased to see that. Um, and that is a bit of progress for Glasgow because we've been in level three that wee bit longer. Yeah, I was going to say, Glasgow has been under pretty tight restrictions for, for, for some time. What, what, what's, what's, the, what's the mood been like amongst uh, the people in your constituency? I mean, people understand why we have to have these restrictions. Um, it's about stopping the, the spread of the virus. And we had um, you know, a significant uptick in numbers in Glasgow, which um, we're beginning to see the end of, um, hopefully, uh, with additional vaccination and additional testing. Um, so people do understand that, but it has been very tough, um, particularly for businesses and for people who have not been able to leave Glasgow to go and see family um, or have people come and visit them. It has been very difficult. 
And I'm sure you've had constituents come and say to you, Alison, as many MPs have, you know, why is it necessary, given the high number of vaccinations, Scotland's done very well on this, and the low death numbers? I mean, the UK as a whole had no deaths from COVID-19 for the first time since the pandemic began yesterday. Yeah, I think that you've just heard from Debbie Schrader there as well about we're not quite out of this yet. Um, and if we were to remove all restrictions right away, then we could end up in a worse situation because the virus just needs that contact uh, to spread. And this new variant, the Delta variant that's been talked about, um, would appear to be um, causing lots of cases to, um, to emerge uh, in other parts of the UK as well. So it's something we need to be really cautious about. We can't kind of underplay the risk that this virus causes, particularly for those who haven't yet got their vaccinations. Um, not everybody hasn't managed to get that yet. And it, it is still a very serious um, illness that people can have. They can either, you know, even if it's not uh, enough to hospitalise you or enough to put you in intensive care, long COVID can be really quite serious. And I've got a number of constituents who are affected by that and are still, you know, not back to full health um, months later. So it is something we really need to be careful with. Be good to talk about the economic measures uh, a little bit. Um, the, the furlough scheme from Westminster has widely been seen as a success by many uh, commentators. Are you happy with what's been put in place on, on the economic front? Yes, and I, I think I would like to see uh, the furlough and the self-employed support scheme just extended that wee bit further um, because, as I say, we don't know whether we're going to be fully able to come out of these restrictions as the government wants. And we found last year when, the, when employers had to pay a bit more into the furlough scheme that that really did put them under a lot of pressure. Now, now we're months and months down the line. Lots of businesses have taken on additional debts and they're really struggling with rent and rates and other things that they have to pay. Um, so I think it is worth considering whether that can be extended a wee bit longer just to give businesses that a bit of extra support. And I suppose a lot of people are going to say, hang on, if, if England comes out of restrictions after June 21st, and there are a number of government support schemes that cease around the same time, particularly in the hospitality industry, it's going to be very difficult for Scotland to maintain a different system, isn't it? Well, I think we, we were in this situation last year as well, where Scotland and Wales were asking for that additional support, asking for support to be extended. And it wasn't until the virus was taken hold in England that the UK government decided to change their minds. Now, we don't want to be in that situation um, at all, but um, I think it is worth making sure that we're all looking after the businesses that need supported. And the Scottish Government uh, Finance Minister will be making further announcements on this later today, I understand. Um but I think where the UK government has the powers here, it should be making sure that people right across the UK are protected um, and they shouldn't cut things off at an arbitrary date. And I'm a wee bit worried about this, this 21st of June date because it has been seen and it has been shown in the media as being some sort of freedom day or something like that. And you go, no, we have to take things gradually. We have to keep careful about this. Otherwise, we're going to end up right back where we were before because this is what happened last summer. This is what happened at Christmas time. We thought uh, things were all fine and things could go back to normal. And that really wasn't the case. I would urge caution and urge people to, to listen to, to people like Debbie Schrader with the, the public health expertise who say we need to take this gradually and we need to stay cautious. More than 10,000 people have died from COVID since the start of the pandemic in Scotland. Uh, do, do you think that the Scottish Government could have done more to keep that number lower? I think Nicola Sturgeon and uh, other government officials in, in Scotland have said, you know, if we had you know, the benefit of hindsight, we would have done things differently. Um, and Nicola's been very upfront about that and has said that we, you know, we should have this public inquiry to establish what happened and what went wrong and what we could have done better. Because I think that is really important that we look at this um, holistically because everybody accepts that there have been mistakes made. Um, 
But if you think back to how we felt in, in March and April last year, it was chaotic and it was scary and it was dangerous and decisions were taken at speed and um, because we didn't know exactly what we were dealing with. Um, so I think there's, there is always more that could have been done. And I think from the UK government side as well, the, the ability of people to travel in and out of the country is what reseeded the virus last year in the summer. So again, you know, there could have been different approaches taken, um, which would have helped. And if you look at the, the way that Australia and New Zealand are managing the virus as well, they're managing to, to get rid of that, um, that risk of the virus completely. So I think there's a lot that could have been done differently. Um, and I'm sure that in time, the public inquiry will get to some of those answers. Alison, let me move you on to a different subject, which is your own party. Now, uh, very publicly, your colleague Joanna Cherry announced she was leaving the SNP's ruling body this week, saying she'd been prevented from, and I quote, fulfilling her mandate of improving transparency and scrutiny in the party. A lot of people scratching their heads about this. What's going on inside the SNP at the moment? I mean, I must admit, I'm also scratching my head on this because I also sit on the SNP's NEC and have, have not. I don't feel as though I've seen the problems that Joanna Cherry is describing. And I think it is unfortunate that she's decided to take that decision. Um, but um, that's that's where we are. But the party is in very good heart. We've just had an absolutely historic election result. Um, we've done incredibly well in the polls. We have the, the backing of the Scottish public to carry out our mandate. And I think... For, um, for people to sort of say that there's any kind of splits within the SNP is, is a gross exaggeration of the situation. The party is in, in good heart and we've got an increased membership as well. Douglas Chapman uh, resigned as the party's treasurer very recently as well. So this is, uh, this is more than one MP uh, resigning. Is, is, there something, <laughs> is there something up at the, at the higher echelons of the, of the SNP at the moment? I mean, as I say, certainly not that, that I can uh, see and I respect colleagues and, and the decisions that they've taken, but um, that's certainly not the um, the feeling that I have serving the NEC. And I think it's a, a good, we have a good bunch of people who are committed to uh, to working very hard uh, to take us further to independence. And um, I hope that um, we will be able to achieve that very soon. But Alison, I mean, you, you talk about these people as if they're in a different planet. I mean, have you spoken to Joanna? Have you spoken to the other people who stood back? I mean, have you got a sense of what's going on? You, you surely are in communication. I haven't had the chance to to, uh, to speak to all colleagues, although I was in touch with, with Douglas. But I, as I say, um, I can't. I'm, I'm also on the same body as them. I don't see things um, in the same way as they do. Um, but the, the, we've just come out of this tremendous election success. We had a party with an increased membership, with an increased mandate, and uh, we are, as I say, in good heart and branches are, are very much up for uh, the campaigns ahead. I want to uh, just push you a little bit on that. Is there a feeling that, that, that things are a little bit dysfunctional at the top of the party at the moment? Uh, I appreciate you had a, a pretty good uh, election, but there does seem to be a lot of uh, internal going goings on. What, what's, what's, what's happening there? Um, as I say, you know, the, overwhelmingly the party um, is in, in good heart and there's no kind of uh, dispute there at all, um, save for, say for a, a few people. But um, I think all parties will have disagreements at various so, different times, and um, this is this is no different to that. Okay, but but Alison, let me let me say, if I were a voter, if I have an SNP voter, and I saw this happening, I think I'd expect from someone like yourself some kind of sense of what's going on. It, you know, just staying back, I don't know what's going on. It doesn't sound very convincing as a voter. 
well, the voters have just given us, uh, have just put their faith in the SNP in, in overwhelming numbers. We've had the highest number of votes that any party has received in the devolution era in Scotland. Uh, but, the, had, but now the party uh, seems to be falling apart, so that doesn't double- make sense. Well, I, I think uh, the, the notion of internal conflict is, is much, much overstated, um, much overstated. And so that it feels to me as if there are some um, who want to kind of to play that game and to see that there is a dispute, but in fact there's, there isn't. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look now at what else is making news in the world of politics and the government's unveiled plans for a big expansion in tutoring. The goal is to help millions of children catch up after their schools were closed during the pandemic. £1.4 billion has been allocated for what's been called a national tutoring revolution. But critics say the plan doesn't go far enough. Labour's shadow education secretary, Kate Green, has accused the Conservatives of showing no ambition for children's futures. It's um, a revolution that falls woefully inadequate of what the government's own education expert, Sir Kevin Collins, is suggesting is needed. And I'm afraid it badly lets down our children and young people. Labour has published a two-year education recovery plan that would cost nearly £15 billion. Now, from education to transport, and ministers have demanded that Transport for London pushes ahead with work to introduce driverless trains on the underground as part of a £1 billion rescue package announced earlier this week. Now, the Department for Transport is going to run a joint programme with TfL to explore the business case for fully automated trains on the Piccadilly and the Waterloo and City lines. But transport unions immediately warned of industrial action in response. And the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, promised to reject any future demand to implement driverless trains. And sign language is going to be used to deliver important passenger information at a train station for the first time in England. Ten touchscreens go live at Euston Station here in London with pre-recorded messages. The messages were used to communicate things like an evacuation, announcements that are usually made over the public address system. Any live updates like unexpected delays can also be uploaded to the portals within an hour. Now, it all speaks to a situation, I think, that's rather crucial. In fact, one we were highlighting on this programme only a few weeks ago, which is the plight of blind or deaf people during this crisis, which many people have accused the Westminster government of simply ignoring. Right, well, let's chew over some of the day's big issues now with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Thanks for joining us, uh, Therese. Let's uh, start off with the uh, rumbling sore for the government that is the Green Seal lobbying scandal. Uh, you wrote uh, a great piece uh, this morning on the Bloomberg Terminal on the website uh, where you say that some powerful figures in British economic policy and supervision missed or ignored warning signals. Now, now just recap for us um, where we're at with unco- uncovering uh, the lobbying which went on uh, at the height of the pandemic last year. Yeah, so we've had the <clears throat> Treasury Select Committee holding uh, 
hearings over a number of weeks. We've had David Cameron's testimony, Lex Greensill's testimony, Rishi Sunak's testimony. So a lot of big names have been in there. And with all of those hours of testimony, you think we would have learned a great deal about how Greensill got access um, to uh, a government guaranteed, a government-backed loan scheme uh, that uh, could expose the British taxpayers to 400 million pounds of um, uh, you know of, of coverage if they are unable to uh, to repay those loans. Unfortunately, there's so many questions that are still not have not been answered because while uh, you know while the Bank of England and the Treasury can say that they've done nothing wrong, that they played by the books, that they turned down Greensill's application for access to the very lo- uh, large financing scheme, um, and that was on uh, qualification grounds. The fact is Greensill did get access to uh, a scheme run by the British Business Bank, but we haven't heard from the British Business Bank. We haven't heard from the Department uh, for Business. And we asked uh, both the Treasury Select Committee and the British Business Bank if there were plans uh, for testimony and uh, before the parliamentary recess, uh, there there weren't any. So we've called in in this op-ed to keep asking those questions and you know try to sort of unpack just how Greensill did get access to uh, to, to the loan scheme, given that there was so there were so many flags uh, about Greensill's. Uh, relations with Gupta, questions about uh, business practices. We have the bank in uh, in Germany that was under investigation. Wyland's bank in, uh, with, in Scotland was under investigation. So a lot of these flags were available to um, any official that was looking into Greensill, and still he got plenty of access at the very highest ranks of government and, and ultimately to a loan scheme, and we just don't know enough about what due diligence was done there. But, Therese, there are a number of inquiries going on into this. Uh, Certainly MPs are pursuing it uh, with some vigour. I guess the answers you're seeking probably will come from those because they're certainly, uh, certainly trying to push this pretty hard. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, they, I mean, to be fair to the Treasury Select Committee, they didn't rule out calling, um, you know, for testimony from the British Business Bank or the Department of Business. They simply haven't done so to date, and there are no plans. And you know, there's a danger that all of the focus on David Cameron and his lobbying efforts is a bit of a distraction, because ultimately. We know that the Bank of England um, was very aware of what was going on, uh, or at least some of the questions and suspicions around Greensill. The Treasury, um, you know, would have been aware as well from even from news reports. And so there's a question of, you know, what are the intragovernmental communications uh, around Greensill? What did they look like? And, you know, could they have been better? And what lessons can be learned from that? And I suspect we will get more testimony that, that delves into that. We just haven't had it so far. Yeah, kind of on that subject, do you, do you think there's a sort of systemic problem with with lobbying in this country? Do, do, do we need to clear up the rules, make things uh, make things more transparent, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, lobbying is is part of a you know, market democracy, and I wouldn't go so far as to say that you know we shouldn't have lobbying or that uh, that there's something inherently wrong with lobbying. But the key is transparency, and clearly, um, you know, to the extent that we don't know uh, precisely, you know, who said what to whom and what kind of um, you know signals were were you know, were responded to, yes, that, that's a problem. And we've now seen from many of the 
transcripts that have been published that this lobbying was 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 really extensive um, and it just shows how easy it is to open doors when you have very um, you know high level people like David Cameron on your books but I think you know the, the answer to it all is transparency 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 and we, you know we're just only beginning to understand uh, the extent of uh, Lex Greensill's network in government um, and we do, it's what's not clear is exactly whether you know how and whether that helped him, uh, you know, gain access to loan schemes that, uh, with a bit more due diligence, uh, would likely have been closed to him. Yeah, sunlight being the uh, greatest uh, uh, antiseptic, as is often said. But let's move on to something else, Therese, which is uh, to do with the way the government could be trying, or is seeming to be able to try, to put back the education that was lost during the pandemic. And tutoring does seem to be the focus of this, a tutoring revolution, we're told. Um, The government putting quite a lot of money into this, but people pointing out that things like, for example, extending the school day or even trimming holidays, neither of them, I'm sure, popular with children, um, might be a better and perhaps more efficient way of doing this. Yeah, I mean, I think the government was right to launch this tutoring revolution and to focus in on tutoring because the studies um, that have been done to date show that tutoring really helps. And not only does it help, it helps with a relatively you know, small amount of investment. So with up to, uh, you know, 12 weeks of tutoring, say once a week tutoring, uh, the, the studies that were done by the Tutor Trust and others show that, that, that children uh, actually make a quite substantial progress. And we know in Britain that even before the pandemic, uh, there is huge inequality in, in education. Um, there's 1.4 million children on free school meals. And by the time they reach 16, poor students were already lagging their richer peers by substantially. So tutoring, I think, is a big part of the answer. The problem is, you know, the government has put in, initially they put in, um, I think it was a billion pounds for a national catch-up package, and that included 350 million pounds for tutoring. Now they've just announced um, uh, another billion. However, if you look at what the education establishment saying is needed, the Education Policy Institute says um, that what's required is 13.5 billion over three years. Um, and, you know, even Kevin Collins, the government's own education recovery are things that the government needs to spend something around 15 billion so what's actually being proposed if you know you go by those uh, estimates is really a drop in the bucket and, and, and you know the risk is that you know you just don't do enough to make up the gap and that is probably you know you know one the, the biggest scar we're going to have from this pandemic long term is the impact on young children who've fallen so far behind in their education yeah, very tough for the class of, of 2020. Uh, I read that a review of classroom time uh, is set to report uh, l- later this year. There, there could be changes coming on that front. Yes, there could be. And, you know, you, I guess you have to ask, uh, you know, at what cost? So if children have extended days, for example, are they going to lose out in recreation and extracurricular activities and that sort of things? It may make sense, but already the British school day is quite a long day. If you compare it to, say, American school children who are often out at you know, 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon, um, and then they play sports in the afternoon. So you know, you're taking a long day, you're extending it further. That may be an answer temporarily, but um, you know, I'm not convinced that the 
costs in terms of well-being for children are really worth it. I'd like to see more money spent on uh, individual tutors for the worst-off uh, children, group tutors for some, and um, and I think that can be done at quite a low cost because you have a lot of college students, university students, who are willing to give a couple of hours a week um, at you know a fairly reasonable hourly rate to help out with this catch-up program. And so I think it's a great thing for young people to help out with, and and it's uh, you know it would be very beneficial for these kids, but it needs to be funded. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.